Good morning. We're so glad you could join us here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Would you stand with us as we begin singing this morning?
may be seated. Well, good morning. It's a joy to gather with you this morning as we were just saying that we entreat and we plead with God to build His kingdom here. And as we gather on, together as God's people in this place, it is a, a visible, tangible sign that God is indeed doing that, that He is building His kingdom. And no matter how hard and how bleak things may look at times in the world, God is at work to build His kingdom and advance His kingdom. And so we get to join together this morning and celebrate that fact, that God is indeed building His kingdom. We're glad that you're here with us to be part of that this morning. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us to celebrate this morning. Uh, a couple announcements to bring to your attention. The first, following the service this morning, we will have our quarterly uh, congregational meeting. And so we would encourage, especially members, to come be part of that. But also if you're new, or if you just want to hear more about the church, you're welcome to come be part of that as well. As part of that meeting, we will vote on, on new members, people who have gone through our membership class and have expressed a desire to become members of our church. So that will be a fun thing to celebrate. Um, and if you're interested in doing that as well, our next membership class will be um, on October 1st, the Saturday from 9 to noon. Um, so we would invite you to be part of that if you're not a member already. Um, if you would need child care for that, that can be arranged. Um, and so we would encourage you to either talk to me, you can email me, or you can write it on your uh, Connect card in the seat in front of you and drop it in the offering box if you're interested in that. Also coming up on September 24th, we're going to have a, a Harvest Festival celebration out at the Russell's Farm. It's the time to gather and get together and um, enjoy each other's company. That's a chance to invite people who may not be real tightly connected with our church to come and be a part of that. Um, so that's on the 24th, Saturday um, at 4 p.m. Dinner will be served at 5. Um, it'll be, uh, yeah. And in preparation for that, the Saturday before, on the 17th at 9 a.m., um, there's a little bit of work that needs to be done at the Russell Farm to help kind of clean up a few things. And so we would, um, if you're interested in helping clean up on the Saturday the 17th, we would just, yeah, appreciate that help. You can contact the church office for information about that or um, show up at 9 o'clock at the Russell Farm on that Saturday. Um, yeah. So again, we're... we're Thankful that you're here. We're looking forward to worshiping God together. And as we continue this time of worship, would you prepare your heart by praying with me? Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and gather your people that you've blocked out this window of time in busy weeks to join together, to be a people that you've brought together here in Three Lakes to be part of your body. And so we thank you for that chance to come together to encourage one another, to sing praise to you together, to learn from your word together. Thank you. We praise you for that chance. We pray for our service this morning that 
as we hear your word, as we sing, that our hearts would be moved and stirred to think and focus on you and to learn more about who you are and what it means to live like Jesus calls us to live. That we, we pray for people we know and love who are sick, who are hurting, who are struggling. Pray that you would be at work in their lives to bring comfort and healing. Above all, we pray that you would reveal your goodness and glory even in the midst of hardship and trials and struggle. As we look out on a broken world, see all kinds of signs that things are not as they should be, things are not right, we see the effect of sin. Pray that you would fill us with confidence and hope that even as we see those hard things, that you are at work to bring about your purposes to make all things new. Give us confidence and hope that there is coming a day when you will set all things right and we will rejoice in a sinless, perfect new heaven and new earth with you. And until that day come, Father, give us wisdom and motivation and the ability to live lives that you would have us live. Show us what that looks like and help us to do it well for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship this morning?
faithful and that you never change and for your new mercies every morning, Lord. We're so grateful.
so, so good to us. You are ever faithful, even as we walk through trial, as we walk through hardships. Your purposes are always good. You are always with us and faithful to us. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May I be seated? One thing I just failed to mention in the announcement, so I mentioned the meeting after the service, but we'll start that around 10.45 after the service and go downstairs and get coffee, and we'll start back in here about 10.45 for that. If you happen to have an extra $10 million laying around, which I assume is all of you, right? Like one option for that $10 million would be to buy Petra Island, which is currently on sale for $9,950,000. And if that sounds expensive, well, the initial asking price was $20 million. You can get it for like half off right now, which is quite the deal. And so Petra Island is an 11-acre island. It's located, as the real estate listing says, it sits significantly in the middle of Lake Mahopec in New York. And, selling point, it's only a 15-minute helicopter ride from Manhattan. So if you also have a helicopter laying around, you're in good shape. But what makes this island so interesting is not so much the island itself, but the house that's located on the island. You can kind of see it in the corner there. Here's a better picture of the island. This, this is the house that's on the island, and it was it's important because it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Right? Although technically, for, for legal reasons, the current owner of the house and the, the real estate listing can only claim that the house was, quote, inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. Right? That's because this house was built in... 1996, well after Wright's death. And it was built from from blueprints and designs that Wright had originally done in 1950. When he was was commissioned at first to design this house and he had finished the design, he claimed that this house, once it was built, would exceed even its famed falling water for grandeur and importance. However, the man who originally owned Petra Island and originally commissioned Wright to design this house, he ran into financial troubles and couldn't actually afford to build the house. So it wasn't until 1996 when a man named Joseph Massaro purchased Petra Island that he also, in that purchase, acquired the blueprints and drawings that Wright originally did. And with the help of a man named Thomas Heinz, who was both an architect and a Wright historian. He used those designs to build this house. He spent four years bringing to life Wright's vision for this house. And yet, despite his effort to faithfully recreate Wright's design, the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, which oversees Wright's estate, sued to prevent Massaro from claiming this house with an official Frank Lloyd Wright piece. And so he can only claim that it was inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. And yet, despite that lawsuit, like, 
no one can deny that this is a Frank Lloyd Wright design. For one thing, we have Wright blueprints. We have the floor plans that he made. And like this house just has all the hallmarks of a, of a famed Frank Lloyd Wright design. He was well known for his use of cantilevers, which you see there. He was well known for his use of incorporating nature and the surrounding environment into his designs, which is done in this house. Like it's clearly a Frank Lloyd Wright design. Massaro was able to recreate Wright's vision for this house because Wright had left him both a blueprint and an example to follow. And in today's passage of the book of Luke, we see the same thing. Jesus gives us a blueprint for how to live our life in the time between his death and resurrection and his second coming. And because we have that blueprint and because we have Jesus' life example itself, we have how he lived his life, we have examples of what it looks like to live as we wait for his return. So Jesus gives us this blueprint for what life will look like in between his death and his second coming. And he does it in the form of a parable. And that parable is found in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. And on kind of a first read-through, this parable can be a little challenging to figure out. So I'm going to read through it kind of one time, give us the big picture of what's going on, and then we'll go back and we'll walk through this parable kind of section by section to see what's happening. So Luke, chapter 19, verse 11 through 27, says this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minutes. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, good and faithful servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in, this, in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own word, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put your put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest then he said to those standing by take his minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas sir they said he already has ten he replied I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given but after the one who has nothing even what they have will be taken away but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, <clears throat> bring them here and kill them in front of me. 
And at first glance, first read there's some challenging aspects to this passage. Right? At first, it's the fact that there's the king, right? the man who goes to be king, who represents Jesus being called a hard man. Right? And the king not really disputing that he's a hard man. Then you have this last verse where the king, again, who, we, who represents Jesus, calls for his enemies to be brought and, and killed in front of him. Like, that's some challenging aspects. Right? And we'll, we'll address those as we go through this passage. Right? But before we get into that, I want us to miss kind of the main point of this passage. I want us to get so focused on the hard part that we miss the main thing that's going on. So if we could boil this passage down to kind of a one-sentence summary... Right? It would be this. Right? Knowing the king allows us to live faithfully while we eagerly anticipate his return. Right? So knowing Jesus, right? really truly knowing him as he had revealed himself, knowing that he is the rightful king, it enables us, it allows us to live faithfully while we wait for his second coming. And if we, if we know that Jesus is the rightful king, we can have confidence that like, one day his second coming will indeed take place. And we can look forward with eager expectation to that second coming. So that's kind of the big main idea that's going on in this passage. That we can look forward to his second coming and live faithfully while we wait. So that kind of big idea in mind, let's go back into the passage and look at some of the details. So starting at verse 11, we read this. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So two really important things for us to see in the passage. First, is that Jesus here is now on the cusp of Jerusalem. All of Luke has been building and pointing to Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. That something big would happen when Jesus got to Jerusalem. And now Luke tells us they are on the cusp. They are near Jerusalem. Jesus had made no secret that all his ministry, all his life was pointed ultimately to come to a climax in Jerusalem. And now they're on the brink. And so the question then in everyone's mind is, sorry, this is what we've been building towards, so now what happens when we get here? Which leads to the second thing we have to notice here, which is uh, the reason he tells this parable was because the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. We've said it a number of times throughout the book of Luke, right? that the expectation of the Messiah in that time was that he was going to come in and lead some kind of military coup and kick out the Romans and establish the kingdom of God, the new Israel, kind of independent right then and there. That was the expectation of the Messiah at that time. That's what people were picturing Jesus doing. So he's telling this parable to show them, to tell them, like, that's not how it's going to happen. Like, I'm not here to lead the military coup you're expecting. Like, your expectations of who the Messiah is and what he's going to do are wrong. That's the point of this parable. The kingdom of God is not going to appear all at once. There's going to be a gap between when Jesus does his work in Jerusalem and when the kingdom of God is fully, finally realized at the end of history. Right? So this parable is all about that gap in time. So the parable starts in verse 12, which Jesus is saying, 
a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Just so we're clear on the imagery, right? the man of noble birth is Jesus, and his trip to a distant country is him after his death and resurrection and eventually his ascension into heaven. Right? That trip to a distant country is his ascension into heaven where he will go and be proclaimed king. So that's what's going on there. This idea of, of traveling to a distant country to be made king is actually it kind of maybe sounds weird to us. Like, why would you go to a different country to be made king? Right? But like, it was a fairly common practice in the Roman Empire. Right? The member of the Roman Empire is huge, it's massive, and technically, like, ultimately, Caesar is the ultimate authority. Right? But it's so big, so massive, they appointed kings to rule over certain regions, certain areas. So, for example, Herod the Great, who like the wise men appear before and who we know for killing all the infants in Matthew, like that wicked Herod, like he, he traveled to Rome to be made king over Judea in 40 BC. Right? So this is not a foreign concept that people that Jesus would be talking to. People traveled to Rome, to a distant country, to be made king over another region. And so Jesus tells them that he's going to travel to a distant country to be made king. I think it's important we see that Jesus makes the point of saying it's a distant country. The point being, like, you shouldn't be surprised when there's a significant delay in my return, a significant gap. It's not a short trip. It's a, a distant country. And therefore, the delay will be significant. Because it's going to be a long delay, he leaves instructions for his followers about how to live while they wait. And those instructions start in verse 13. Jesus said, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. And so before we get into exactly what Jesus has to say about how we should live while he's away, like we should take a few minutes to notice those last four words, which is, until I come back. And there's an assumption in those words, and that assumption is, like, Jesus is indeed coming back. And so the first step in the process of living the life that Jesus called us to live is to live in the knowledge that Jesus actually will one day return. That we should live with an expectation that Jesus is coming back. And so we ask the question, like, like, are you anticipating, are you expecting the King's return? Are you expecting Jesus to return someday? And I ask that because, like, for me at least, as I grew in my faith, and as I learned more, this is one of the last kind of key teachings of the Bible that really sank into my head. Like I, could, I could wrap my head around this idea of like we go to heaven after we die, and I could even wrap my head around this idea that like some people don't go to heaven when they die. But, but for me, like those are the two possible outcomes. Right? Like you die, and then like heaven or hell. Right? Those are the two options. And that, that way of thinking is pretty widespread in our culture. Like, death feels certain. It feels inevitable. Like, we love to quote Benjamin Franklin when he says, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Right? Right? Death feels certain. Right? But the fact of the matter is, like, if it's really true that Jesus is coming back someday, right? then there's a generation of people who, for death, 
For them, death is not certain. Death will not be a thing. There will be people alive when Jesus comes back who will not experience death. You know, we talk about death as this foregone certainty. Which is belies this idea that we don't really think Jesus is coming back. I remember one of the first times this idea really hit home for me that like, there are people who really believe Jesus is coming back, and I'm not sure I really believed it before then. Right? So like, we were in college, we were at a friend's wedding, and they were doing their vows, and they got to the line right, at the end, like, until death do us part. My brain thought, like, there it is, the end. But then they went on to say, or until Christ returns. I think, oh, I guess, yeah, that could be it too. Right? And like, it clicked in my brain, like, oh, yeah, like, we, we talk even in weddings, like, even Christian weddings, we, we make death out to be the inevitable end of how things will end. But if we're seriously believing that Jesus will return someday, like, there will be those alive who are alive when he returns, that death will not be the thing that parts them in marriage. But we quote Franklin about death and taxes. We, we say, till death do us part. And in doing those things, we, I think we minimize right, the fact that Jesus will return one day. That death is not ultimately certain. So just, the question is, like, are you living in the reality that Jesus really will return someday? Right? Are you resigned to the fact right, that death is the only way this ends? And like, look, I mean, there's a 2,000 years of waiting. Many people have died. And there's a very good chance that all of us here will die before that happens. But it's not certain. And yet, sometimes the way we talk and the way we think and the way we speak, it makes it sound like we're certain that death is the thing that will end it for us. And it shows a lack of confidence that Jesus will return someday. So once we embrace this idea that Jesus will indeed return someday, then the next question we should ask is, not only do you expect it, but are you eager for the king to return? Like, you can embrace the reality that Jesus will return without being eager for it, without being excited for it. That's what certain people did in, in verse 14 in this parable. Right? Verse 14, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. Like, we don't want this man to be our king. And this, in this parable, like these people who, who hate Jesus and don't want Jesus to be their king, and they're, they represent Jewish people, especially the religious leaders who are very happy with the status quo. Like they just want things to keep going the way they're going. They're, they're content with their status as God's chosen people. And they don't want a new king to come in and change that status. They want things to remain the same. And like if we're being honest, it's really easy for us to feel the same way about Jesus' return. Especially, especially when life is good. Like maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, because you know you're not supposed to have these kind of thoughts, but like, at least I've like been going through good stretches of life. Good, fun, easy patches of life. And I would think, like, I mean, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to want Jesus to come back, but like, things are pretty good right now. I'm kind of happy just rolling with this. 
I'm not really eager for Jesus to come back. Or like maybe there's something you've like really been looking forward to. Like maybe there's like some big once in a lifetime trip you have planned and you're like have the thought like I'd really hope Jesus waits until after my trip, right? To come back. I just want to get the trip in. Like, maybe I'm the one who has those thoughts, but like I know when I find myself having them, like it reveals two problems in my heart that I need to kind of analyze and think through. First, the first problem that that kind of attitude reveals in my own heart is that like, I've made an idol of the world. Right? That there are things that I want in this life, in this world, more than I want Jesus. And if that's true, then that means my thinking about, my understanding of, my picture of Jesus is too small, too dim. When we're seeing Jesus for who He truly is, as He truly reveals Himself to be, it's clear that He's far better than any trip, anything this world has to offer. And the idea of wanting something else more than Him doesn't make sense. The second problem in my heart when I'm not eager for Jesus to return is that I'm not feeling the weight and the effects of sin. Sin has this power to taint and to corrupt even life's best moments. And so this idea that anything in this sin-stained world could remotely compare to the goodness and splendor of a sinless eternity with Jesus is preposterous. And yet I find myself having those thoughts. And so when I find myself having those thoughts, and if you find yourself having those thoughts, kind of two things that I find helpful. First, just reflect and think on the goodness of Jesus. Read about Him in His Word. Reflect on all that He has done for you. Think about how He's died for your sins in your place. Think about all that He is. And as you reflect, just let that deepen your desire to be with Him more than anything this world has to offer. The second thing you can do is reflect on your own sinfulness. Reflect on the brokenness of the world around you. Think about, dwell on how sweet, how great it will be when all the sin that still clings to you and this world is finally taken away. Reflect on what joy it will be when all the brokenness of the world is done with and all is set right. I think if you do those two things, then your, your eagerness for Jesus to return will deepen greatly. And when we're, when we're eager and when we're waiting for Jesus to return, then our task becomes to live faithfully while we wait. We see two examples of followers living faithfully in this passage. Verses 15 through 19. He would make king, however, and return home. Then he sent for the servant to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the first one came and said, Sir, your minna had earned ten more. Well done, good and faithful servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minute has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. 
that before the king departed in this parable, right, he had gone to his servants and he had each given them a minna, which is like three month wages, and he said, like, put this money to work until I come back. Right? And we see here two of his servants did that well. Right? One reaped a tenfold return on that one minna he was given, the other a fivefold return. And as a result of their faithfulness, as a result of their putting that money to work, the king rewards them richly for their faithfulness. He gives them ten cities and five cities, respectively. And what's important here is not necessarily the number of minas or the exact rate of return. What's important is that the king gave his servants resources to be used for the king's purposes. And when they showed themselves faithful, they were rewarded lavishly. The king gives resources to be used for the king's purposes, and in their faithfulness they're rewarded lavishly. That's the, that's the charge of this passage, that we faithfully use the resources God has given us, the time and the talent and the, the wealth that we've been given for Jesus' purposes. And so the question then is, like, are you doing that? Are you living faithfully? Are you using the talent that you've been given? Are you using the resources you've been given? Are you using the, the time you've been given in the way that Jesus would have you use them? When the king returns, will he say, as he did to these servants, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been trustworthy. You have been faithful. So will Jesus say that to you when he returns? And to answer that, you have to know right, what it is that Jesus would have you do with the resources he's given you. And I don't think, in light of that, that it's a coincidence that this passage, this parable, shows up right after Jesus makes the statement, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we get this clear statement, like Jesus' purpose on earth was to seek and save the lost. And if that's Jesus' purpose, then like, that becomes our purpose as well. And we're to use our gifts for that purpose. It's also not a coincidence that the very last word from Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, like, the last words he speaks, his departing words are this. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. With his final word, his departing word, his farewell address, he gives his followers the task of preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. So if we kind of put that all together, like we're to use our time and our talent and our resources or to use them to see that the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins advances to all nations. Everything we have, everything that's been given to us by Jesus, which is everything we have, right, should ultimately be used in some way to lead others to Christ. And that could look a lot of different ways. Like that could look like giving money to mission, missionary organizations or giving money to the church. That could look like physically you yourself going across the globe to tell people about Jesus. But it could also look like going across the street to 
talk to your neighbor. And build a relationship that will eventually let you talk to them about Jesus. It can look like using your home to show hospitality to others. Either to encourage and refresh believers or to, again, build relationships with non-believers. It can, like, it can look like using your God-given talents to, to serve the church. Or it can look like using your God-given talents to do your job well. And in your job, let people know that you follow Jesus and you are therefore representing Him. It can look like using your time to teach and talk to your own kids about Jesus. There are lots of ways that you can use your time and your talent and your resources to advance the kingdom. It doesn't mean like, you have to sell everything and go become a traveling evangelist. In fact, like, unless you're specially gifted for that task, it's probably a bad idea. But the key here is like, it's intentionality. That you're intentionally thinking about how to use your time, how to use your talent, how to use your resources in ways that honor Jesus. And that's something the third servant in this parable did not do. Starting in verse 20, we read about the third servant, and we read this. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own word, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. We said earlier, this is a kind of confusing part of the parable. Because this, this servant seems to call Jesus a hard man. And Jesus doesn't refute him. It kind of seems like almost Jesus is agreeing with that assessment. But notice that while he doesn't refute the statement that he's a hard man, he also doesn't agree with him. Instead he simply says, I will judge you by your own words. So Jesus' point in saying that is like, look, I'm, I'm just, even if, it, even if it was true, like just on the assumption that it was true, like even then your actions still don't make sense. So Jesus is not actually agreeing with the assessment that he's a hard man, but he's just saying, like, even if that was right, like, that's still a nonsensical action you took. But the bigger issue is that in calling Jesus a hard man, or calling the king a hard man, the third servant is showing that he didn't really know the king at all. Like, just think about it. It interacted with the previous two servants. In those interactions, he's shown himself to be anything but a hard man. He had rewarded their faithfulness with words of praise and with generous gifts and given them cities. That doesn't seem like the picture of a hard man. A hard man would have taken what they earned and like, maybe begrudgingly said, like, I guess you did all right. 
and sent them on their way. That would be a hard man. But this, this king is not a hard man. He lavishly rewards them for their faithfulness. And so the bigger issue here is that this third servant didn't actually know the king. He had somehow attached himself to the, the community of the king's servants, but he didn't actually know the king. And the same thing can happen in our churches. There are people who show up in church, who attach themselves to this community of Jesus followers, but who don't actually know Jesus. Like I hope it doesn't happen here, but it certainly happens in many churches around the world. People show up in church, they attach themselves to that community, but they don't actually know Jesus. So the question is, like, do you know the King? Do you know Jesus? This isn't the same thing as just showing up at church most weeks. But do you know and love the person of Jesus who died for you? That's the only hope for forgiveness for your sins. The question is not, do you like hanging out with Christians? The question is not, do you have some vague faith that some God exists? The question is not, is not do you do Christian activities? The question is not, do you live a moral life? The question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know the King? Do you know Him as He reveals Himself in His Word? Do you know the Jesus that's in this book? Not the picture of Jesus that our culture portrays, but the real Jesus. It's only by, by knowing the King that we can, we can be ready for His return. That's, that's why we spent over, well over a year now going through this book of Luke. Right? The picture of who Jesus is. It's a picture of the real Jesus. And I want us to see Him and know Him as He is really revealed to us. So that when He does return, we're prepared for the consequences of His return. And we see those consequences in verse 26 and 27. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And that's like not a cheery note for a parable to end on. But it raises an important question. Which is, are you ready for the consequences of the king's return? Are you ready for what it means when Jesus comes back? When he comes back, he will judge everyone who ever lived. His standard for who gets reward is perfection. Which is bad news. For all of us, we, we all fail to live up to His standards. Because of our sin, we're all in that category of those who deserve to be brought and killed in front of Him. 
to face judgment. So the only way we can avoid that destiny is to be forgiven of our sins, of our transgressions. And again, like Luke is so careful, so thoughtful in how he structured and ordered his gospel. He he ends, like those are the last words we hear from Jesus before he enters Jerusalem. Like what happens in Jerusalem? He, He, despite living a sinless life, is arrested and beaten and tortured and eventually crucified on a cross. Not because he deserved it, but because he went in our place to let our sins that are worthy of that kind of judgment, that deserve that kind of judgment, to be paid for, to be dealt with on the cross. When he raised it from the dead three days later, he shows that he was indeed the sinless Son of God, that our sins have been dealt with if we place our faith in him. So the only way to be ready for His return is by having faith in Him. So if you're here and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, you don't, you've never come to know the real Jesus, I'd invite you and encourage you to do that. If you have questions about what that means, I'd be more than happy to talk to you more about that. The only hope any of us has of avoiding the judgment that Jesus speaks of here by trusting that what he does in Jerusalem provides us forgiveness and hope. If you have never trusted, I would invite you, encourage you to do that. For those of us who are here who have trusted in Jesus, my hope, my encouragement would be like, be faithful servants. Take the time the money, the resources, the talent that you've been given and use them for the king's purposes. Don't use them to advance your own agenda. Don't use them to achieve your own desire. Use your time. Use your resources. Use your talents for the good of the kingdom. To see the kingdom advance. To see people know and love Jesus more. Trusting that when Jesus returns, He will see what you've done. He will see your faithfulness. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will reward you for your faithfulness. And that reward will be far better than anything you could gain in this life by using your resources for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to come and live a life that would culminate in Jerusalem in His death and resurrection, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. Father, we thank You for 
the time and the talent and the resources you've given us in this life. We confess that there are times when we think we've earned our abilities and we lose sight that all good things we have come from you. We thank you for the way you've blessed us with many gifts that we take for granted day in and day out. Father, would we use those gifts? Would we use the talent you've given us? Would we use the money you've enabled us to earn? Would Would we use the time that we have on this earth? Would we use it for your glory? Would we use it to see lost, hurting, broken sinners come to a knowledge of Jesus where they can find hope and restoration? Would we use our, our time and our talents and our resources to see your name made great, to see you glorified? We use it to love one another well. Would we see your kingdom advance because of the way we live our lives? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we'll we'll meet back here at ten forty five for our for our meeting. Do you do you go from here today? Would you go desiring to see God glorified through how you live the life and using the gifts He's given you? You are dismissed.